welcome to another episode of the Games and Schools and Libraries podcast. I'm Donald Dennis. You can find me wandering the wilds of the internet as Walsfio. And today I'm here in the library with our other amazing co-host herself, Kathleen Mercury. Hello. Thank you so much for your warm welcome to beautiful Polly's Island, South Carolina. And... Of course, your couch, which is also fantastic. Um, I have used many words to describe that couch. Fantastic <laughs> has never been one of them. It so did the trick. The fact you managed to get through a night sleeping on the couch without coming out crippled, I think, is a victory of all sorts. But uh, Strong stuff. That's Strong a different Midwestern show, stock. I think. Yeah. So, yeah, I was at Dice Tower. Super fun. And then I'm doing a big road trip going up the East Coast between Florida and making my way eventually to Indy for Gen Con at the end of the month and so you were stop number two so thanks so much for having me excellent and you brought on a guest why don't you introduce our guest i did and it's funny we were talking about hey let's record something and then sen and i were talking about our work together um for fan expo where uh we're both going to be guests there fed expo uh, fan expo sorry not fed expo fan expo toronto and then also we're working together for the tabletop networks new voices in gaming um new voices in design uh, uh scholarship program or award program and so <laughs> but somewhere in there that's what it is well, and we still don't have an introduction okay so anyway so sen mentioned something about yay get schools and librarians i love that and i was like wait a minute we're going to record well you can okay eric can cut this out or you can cut this out if this is too rambly but ladies and gentlemen I would love to introduce Sen Foon Lim, who is an amazing gamer, designer, educator. He works up in Canada at a university there, which he'll probably tell us the name. And <laughs> with a background in psychology and research, he has a lot of different interesting perspectives to bring to gaming. He's a host of the Meeple Syrup Show. There's so many different things that get Sen does in gaming. And one of the most important things is just being super awesome and supportive to so many people. So Sen, thank you for forgiving me for my fantastic fantastic introduction and hello and welcome to the show thanks for having me it's great yeah. to be here yeah Woo-hoo. so yeah let our listeners know where you can be found besides apparently maple syrup oh other than maple syrup you can find me on twitter at senfong lim it's hard to spell so i'll spell it for you s-e-n-f-o-o-n-g-l-i-m um and that's usually the best place to find me is either on twitter or at the maple syrup facebook pages where we have maple syrup shop talk uh, if you want to come join that, that'd be great. I would love to invite you and accept your uh, request to come join that wonderful uh, group of people who are talking about games and design and the industry and all that kind of stuff. So that's and where all I usually the, am. All those links should be in the show notes unless I forget to get them from you. <laughs> that's totally fine. High Don't quality operation we got going on here. Right. Right. <laughs> um, well, I mean, no promises, but check out the show notes for all the delight sure. right there. Of mm-hmm. course. Yes. So do you use games, uh, you know, uh, when you teach? Yeah. Um, so more and more, we're trying to find ways to engage our students. And even in post-secondary, it's amazing how much more you'll get out of students when they're actually having fun. I mean, imagine that, right? Or at mm-hmm. least they're engaged. So... Um, I tend to use a lot more role-playing type things when I do my teaching because I teach very specific things in terms of um, crisis prevention and uh, mediation and de-escalation techniques and things like that. So role-playing works great for that. Uh, But I also teach developmental psychology. And one of the things that we're doing this term is we're introducing a game of sorts, which is sort of more like an activity, but it's really, it's got some gamey elements where you roll the die and you find out, you know, at birth, how strong your brain is. And then you get random cards dealt to you, which add weight to your brain. By the way, your brain is made out of pipe cleaners. And so uh, as you that get more... a lot. Yeah, right? right? As yeah. you get more networks built, you add more pipe cleaners to your towering brain. Uh, mm. But as things happen to you across your life, um, like, let's say, you know, you start smoking, you're going to start adding weights to your brain. And if your brain collapses, you're out of the game. Uh, mm. So it's, it's an, an interesting way of doing that kind of stuff. I didn't design this, by the way. This is uh, a package that we purchased from another company. But it's just neat to use those types of experiences 
that are kind of abstract and gamified, but relate back to the topics and hopefully will help our students kind of grasp and retain the knowledge um, through an experience thing. So something that you can't see really, but experience, Mm -hmm. I think that's where we're aiming for that. But we also do things like escape rooms. Uh, So we'll do escape boxes for um, specific things. So we do one for for drugs. Uh, One of the skills that our students have to graduate with is uh, they don't win the drugs is they have to be able to, (laughs) they have to be able to dispense medication to people that they're supporting. And so that's the number one error that happens out in the field is poor med pour, uh, a bad med pour, uh, where they're pouring the incorrect amount. Mm. And so dosage is important. So we have a whole escape room that is set up around proper dosage. Um, well, it's interesting. And I think that the neuroscience uh, topic is especially interesting as I've taught a unit on the brain to my students who are as young as sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so incredibly important for them to understand the brain because it's around age 12 that their brain starts to transform itself from that childlike brain of just massive amounts of connections to really refining itself through synaptic pruning and developing better, stronger connections, bringing the frontal lobe of their brain fully online. And one of the difficulties that we have, or that I have, is in making such an abstract idea really concrete and relevant to them. I mean, we do things like for neurotransmission, um, where they have to create like a skit almost where they're basically acting out all the parts. They have to come up with some sort of analogy. So it might be like delivering the mail, showing how neurotransmitters work and bind, and then the reuptake process Mm -hmm. um, to do that. There's lots of different things that we've done to like, it's funny because you said pipe cleaners, they make neuron buddies as they learn the neuron anatomy and everything. Um, But really understanding how the brain is working and changing because especially as they proceed through adolescence, I feel like if they understand the brain better, they can hopefully understand how to make better choices as it relates to their brain, both in terms of their health, in terms of eating and sleeping and exercise, but also in terms of drugs. I mean, you'd hope they would. <laughs> I'd, I'd hope they would. And, you know, and it's hard, too, because, I mean, and it is a function of their brains that a lot of what they're learning at this stage, they won't remember later on in life just because their brain will itself have weeded this out as well. You know, I mean, that's like the I'm yeah. swimming up. The, swimming I, up the, I mean, in terms of neurodevelopment at that stage in, you know, early to mid adolescence, when mm-hmm. there's really the amygdala and the emotional centers of the brain are really what's going to be firing faster and and triggering faster and making they're they're making emotionally based decisions right more than rationally based decisions like frontal lobe type stuff right right, right. Uh, and so they're they have the ability to it's it's funny they do it's just that the connection between the emotional parts of the brain and the rational parts of the brain aren't really fully formed and so what happens is that they make these snap decisions based on emotional triggers mm-hmm. um, when they maybe should sit back a little bit. And that's then that's what we're there for as teachers and parents and, and advisors and whatnot is to say, hey, maybe you should just sit back a couple seconds and take a look at what you decided and see if that's really what you want to do. Right. <clears throat> because at some level, we have to allow for autonomy because that's part of development as well. Sure. Um, and as long as the consequences aren't, you know, death or dismemberment, maybe natural consequences are okay to teach them. So we, we have to, there's a big balancing point, right? We can't necessarily hover over everybody because we see right. where that gets people. But we also can't just leave them up to their their own devices because their brain is sort of... It's still under construction, heavily, actually, in adolescence. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, we're going to talk today about how games could be a part of shaping adolescent development, right? Right. Well, and I think just to clarify a little bit more about the amygdala, and obviously you've studied more of this more formally than I have, but 
in terms of what I'm teaching them, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Sure. But there's a really famous study where they showed people pictures of brain, pictures of people's faces showing various emotions. And adults did a better job of correctly describing what the emotions were than adolescents did. And then when they looked at the research and, and they had people's brains being scanned, adults were using their frontal lobe, the frontal lobe, which is your executive functioning, mm-hmm. using memory, logical processing. And so adults were able, like you said, process what was happening on the emotions of these people's faces on the pictures more rationally. But in adolescence, the frontal lobe, there's a good 10% or so that's not fully online yet, which is quite a bit. And so they tend to process more through the amygdala, which is the emotion emotional center. And I, right. I even talk about River Song and how in Firefly, they, you know, tweaked with her amygdala in order to make her this like super fighter. Uh, and they, they love the idea nerd. that, yeah. <laughs> well, Hey, awesome. this is what I do. I teach gifted kids and it's it, me. <laughs> um, and I show the video of how she like, you know, like wipes out everybody with like the doors closed and they're like, Whoa, I'm like, no, you're not going to do that to your amygdalas. I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know, just so they can see, you know, why, and I'll talk about like, or think about the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you. And you just see them like re-experience it. You just see their body language change. I said, that's your amygdala. It's encoding that emotion into memory so you remember not to do that thing ever again it's a good thing that's happening sometimes you know and so and so getting them to understand how their amygdala works and understanding that there could be a different way or you will continue to grow because they can obviously understand what i'm talking about you know Mm -hmm. and so hopefully getting them to understand like why they act the way they do. Like when your friend is, you know, like losing her stuff in the hallway or somebody else is sort of losing herself, helping them to be kinder to themselves, you know? And I tell them like, I don't think I can ever get as mad as I could back when I was your age. I remember just raging so hard at things. I don't think I have it in me anymore. I mean, I might, depends on what it is, (laughs) but you know, but the thing is this, but it's not something that I can just tap and access like on a moment's note, like just, boom, I'm just going to go there, you know, so that's what I'm trying, especially for them to be kinder to each other, kinder to themselves, when they have these not so great moments, and then they regret it and feel that afterwards. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole idea of mindfulness and whatnot, that is uh, permeating the culture right now, which is great, by the way, it's not I'm not saying it in a bad way, Mm -hmm. um, really does help with that, like, hey, you need to calm down, sit down, chill out, whatever you want to say to them. Uh, mm-hmm. Although saying calm down to people that are upset really doesn't work that well. <laughs> but you need to sit and think about what you're doing. Maybe that'd work better. A right. more directive. Um, right. But yeah, so the idea that adolescents are, you know, wired for emotion isn't isn't a fallacy. I mean, it is definitely what we see through studies and the research. So um, that said, I, I think it is our responsibility as adults and educators to help adolescents, young adults, really, um, deal with those issues as they're getting older and and how we look at that in terms of why are they like that and understanding that and giving them a little bit of leeway, but also making them, you know, responsible for the outcome of their behavior, right? It's not a, it's not a total pass. You can't just kind of hand wave, oh, they're emotional, so I guess they get to hit people, or I guess they get to, you know, be really mean to other people. No, that's, you know, there's a difference between an excuse and a reason, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to kind of get across to the adolescents as well, and parents of adolescents, that, okay, that's the reason why it's happening, but there will still be consequences, Mm -hmm. right? So when we're talking about games, then, Mm -hmm. considering that we're working with, and it's funny, because when I tell people I teach middle school, they look at me like, you know, like, what? (laughs) Like, are you a prison guard or something? Like, no, I love it. It's the most fun you can have in the school day. And there are days where they can be absolutely wretched. And then the next day, they can come in with like a little handwritten note. And they're like, I'm sorry. And it's like, it's cool. Like, you cannot teach middle school if you hold grudges. You know, there are days (laughs) you want to. (laughs) But I mean, generally speaking, I just take the perspective that they're doing the best they can and I'm an adult and I can handle a whole lot of noise and I'm, I'm totally willing if you need to yell at me so that you can work this out so that we can process it later okay I can handle it let's 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 do this you know um, but generally speaking that doesn't happen very much at all but um, when we're talking about games then 
Yeah. Obviously, navigating the sort of like roller coaster that they can be feeling where they can be capable of such like amazing, like intuitive leaps when it comes to, you know, ideas and strategies and how to play games. But then there's that part where they're embarrassed that they lost a game or they're mad that they lost a game, you know, Mm -hmm. and and why do you think games work so well when it comes to working with adolescents? Well, I mean, so there's a bunch of of developmental needs that are very, very specific to adolescents. Adolescence is this big time where we have, um, you know, this sort of return to egocentrism, uh, this sort of time where adolescents will tell themselves, you know, fables and stories about themselves. They'll have a narrative that they have to fulfill or they think they're going to fulfill, you know, and they they feel they're invulnerable. And so it's this this interesting time of life where they have this egocentrism, this really strange confidence, but also this, you know, soul-crushing introspection about themselves that they're not worthy of whatever they think they're not worthy of. Mm -hmm. Um, And so games, I think are this neat thing in terms of developmental and uh, answers to developmental questions in that it can provide a lot of the things that we've defined as developmental needs for adolescents when it comes to, um, you know, interaction with peers and others, the media, teachers, adults, parents, etc., etc. So um, one of the things that is really funny... <coughs> about Western development is that uh, typically girls play with girls, boys play with boys uh, forever, for like the longest time. And then in adolescence, they get into this period where it's like, hey, I'd actually like to socialize with the opposite sex, the opposite gender, but I have no clue how to interact with them. And so, in my opinion, games give a really easy way for that to happen because there are rules. There are rules of how you have to engage with that other person to play the game. And then, you know, social stuff can happen around the game. But if we have this thing that isn't, you know, gender-based, that isn't, you know, so loaded with, oh, that's a girl's sport or that's a boy's sport or whatever, it's just a game that they can meet on kind of the safe, even ground, learn the rules, play a game and get to know each other and communicate around the game, about the game, but learn how to interact with each other without all this baggage that we tend to have with some of the other things that, you know, society places upon adolescents in terms of gender identification and whatnot, right? So I think that's definitely one part where I see games being a great tool to help people learn how to interact with people they've never really interacted with before on that level Mm -hmm. well one thing so for donald to throw this to you when we were talking about this last night i have a captive population i'm their teacher i don't like giving grades it's the thing i have to do but they can be a carrot they can be a stick as far as getting them to produce output you have kids that come in drop in you know, so you have a different sort of way that you have to proceed in terms of helping them to manage their behaviors. What are the great successes, great challenges that you face when you have kids coming in? Um, well, we've got uh, a, you know, a wide variety of behaviors that come in through the door, of course, you know, and it really actually it's amazing how much it varies uh, by, uh, you know, economic demographic as well as by gender. Yeah. So, you know, in when we're in some of our libraries, like out in Andrews, where people are not used to playing games and taking turns or even listening to instructions very well, the same way where you've got more kids here at, uh, at this branch that they sort of have more of a family history of playing games. And so they've already got these, um, I don't know, pathway is not the right word, but they've already sort of got that part of their brain broken in where they're more able to sort of learn some stuff. But on the other hand, we get to the point where it's like, all right, now we're going to teach you how to teach games. Every kid's bad at that at this point. Mm -hmm. It's like, I know this game. I can teach the game. And after five minutes of not being able to teach the game, they put the box away and they go try and do something else. So that's, we've got to be hands on with that. Um, But, um, 
gender is not, uh, you know, as huge of an issue here. We've got, uh, you know, of course we do have like a group of girls who come in and they'll play Uno or whatever games they naturally feel safe playing already because they know them. Uh, but some of the guys who have been coming in for a bit longer will jump in on whatever game we've got set out because it's like, oh, you have shown us good games before and we're willing to get into them. So I don't know that I answered your question at all because I was not expecting to be asked a question. That's why we have a guest. (laughs) Well, I I think it's, I mean, I I mean, I just could imagine, you know, just like what you're saying though, is like base, you know, we all learn rules in terms of how we have to behave and adapt when we're in different um, situations. And, and we were just talking about this last night, as far as that goes. Um, When you're working so, Sen, you do mm-hmm. games in your classes. Do you do any sort of gaming groups at the at the university? Do you, no, are you involved? No, unfortunately, I'm not. I mean, I play games with some of my coworkers, some of the other right. professors, but um, we don't have one that I'm associated with that is mm-hmm. student run. But it's it's hilarious. I'll walk through the halls and I'll see uh, students playing Dungeons and Dragons at tables and stuff like that. And I love it. And I, I so want to go and talk to them, but I just, I, you know, there is a, there is a sort of boundary somewhere. So, oh, that's um, true. And, and gosh knows you're probably one of the busiest people I know as well. Well, so no, it's a- not, it's not just that. It's just, it's, it's, it's a little bit different at that age. Um, and it's like, these are, I'm one out of, you know, hundreds of faculty members and they're five out of, 10,000 students, right? So it's not like a public school in mm-hmm. that regard. Like at a public school, you'd know all the students and they'd know who you are or at least have some idea of who you are. Right. But it's just like some rando going to talk to you. It's a little weird. Do you uh, think any gaming flair that you could wear like a D20 pen or a little <laughs> pole on your lapel yeah, would sort maybe. of uh, be the kind of thing to open you up to? Yeah, I, I, I know when I, wear, when I wear certain like anime t-shirts, some of my students like they love that because... They like anime, so it's an instant connection, right? It it's is. Like, oh, it is. You wear you're that. An adult, you wear your but you're geek not on your sleeve, formed. right? So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that was one thing that was interesting, though, with this uh, program that I did. I worked for three weeks for Missouri Scholars Academy. It's an um, it's a highly selective three week residential program for gifted students from across the state of Missouri, and I taught a class, a three hour class, um, each day. In a one-hour class, but the three-hour class is really where we got into it on game design. And in talking with the kids about their gaming experience, I had everything from kids who really didn't know too much about hobby games, hadn't really thought about game design until this became an option for them, all the way to kids who play Twilight Imperium with their friends every single Saturday. Mm. And it's really and 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 how many kids have familiarity with Catan if no if no other game but still how they're familiar with Catan but even how many hobby games have already sort of filtered into their lives there's one kid who is now going to be a junior in college so he's always sort of my like barometer and when he came in as a seventh grader to my class his family had Puerto Rico and I was stunned because (laughs) it was so uncommon to have any student have any kind of hobby gaming experience I was like whoa that's awesome but now I have so many kids like when they're coming into me they have gaming experience either sometimes it's because i taught their siblings and their their siblings like games and then their family bought the games and they played the games so they've come in with those experiences or just you know on their own or their families play games that happens all the time where i'll work with a kid who i haven't worked with before they're like oh yeah we have this we have this we have this and it's really changing in a good way you know obviously the more you know about games the better you are at designing games and less scary they can be i think um, but even seeing how many kids have this sort of gaming experience and the benefits that it has towards them, both in terms of, you know, listening to others and taking turns and, you know, all those sorts oh, of yeah. <laughs> elemental, you know, basic kind of behaviors that gaming um, can teach and reinforce. Yeah, gaming does a lot for those uh, social conventions of turn taking, of listening, of, you know, paying attention to other people. Of following rules and structures and limits yep. and cheating and grace, gracious winning and gracious losing, mm-hmm. all those types of things are very, very uh, bred into gaming and how younger younger students and younger learners will use it for that. And hopefully that will you know carry on as children develop into teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get that emotional kind of flare up around that age again where 
that may be something that is difficult for them. Mm-hmm. But, but that's okay too, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. We uh, So, my program started out primarily as video games and technology training for, for kids. And uh, I brought in uh, some tabletop games. And the way that they used the space and the way that they interacted with each other changed a great deal because it used to be oh they were kind of annoyed that so and so was on the machine they wanted or playing the game they wanted to play and uh they wouldn't push in their chairs and the the, the room was kind of you know a hot mess at uh, another one of the branches of the library and i started bringing out a variety of, of board games and the kids interacted a lot more and mm-hmm. their relationship with the librarians or the library staff improved greatly just because instead of setting up a game and walking away, we got involved with it. Right. Right. And, and you became more of a, almost like a, a peer or a partner in the experience, right? Yeah. A, than just a um, or, or even more of a mentor because, yeah. uh, you know, they didn't know anything about these games. and But it also allowed me to ask them questions about video games to sort of empower them to tell me about stuff. Right. And it went both ways. And so that's pretty neat is that you give them the opportunity to teach you when you're teaching them and then they feel much more comfortable with that casual relationship as opposed to, Hey, I'm coming into the library and you're shushing me all day. Right, right, right. One, uh, one person you should talk to at some point in your podcast is Daniel Kwan. Uh, he, you'll meet him actually when you come up to Toronto, I hope Kathleen. Cool. Uh, Daniel is a, he's a museum educator. So he works at the Toronto museum. Mm-hmm. And he uses Dungeons and Dragons as a way to engage the students who are like at a program at the museum to learn about history, to learn about all this kind of cool stuff. And it's really interesting to hear him talk about it. Um, and it sort of sounds like what you were just talking about, Dennis, in terms of um, Donald, sorry, in terms of all the like getting that more mentorship, getting that interaction, that that give and take communication between the students and the mentor, you know, what are you interested in? How can I support that through a game? Uh, and that was, that's really interesting. So hopefully I can introduce you to him. Nice. Yeah. Because one of the other things developmentally that teenagers need is an outlet, an outlet for creativity. If they are a creative person, or even if they don't think they are a creative person, giving them an outlet helps them maybe show that they are. Um, And I think role-playing games, in terms of gaming, are a really good way to do that for students who are maybe more emotive or even less emotive, right? So Mm -hmm. that they're just, I'm just really interested in, you know, the fantasy genre and I want to be, you know, an orc or whatever, an elf and blah, blah, (laughs) blah. But you know, okay, then you're going to need to talk about it and you're going to need to tell us what you're doing and you're going to need to be part of this group and learn how to function as a team to solve this problem. Um, and it's, I think, something that can build a whole lot of meaningful relationships and a lot of meaningful experiences in a different way than like a board game does. Mm-hmm. So role-playing games are kind of this different class of things, uh, but they're definitely within the whole realm of of gaming for sure and when you think of how they can help children develop in terms of creation uh, create being creative in terms of uh, competence and achievement in terms of allowing them to set goals and meet them define who they are explore different roles and and genders and sexualities and all that kind of stuff I think uh, role-playing games are really interesting for teenagers as well. Well, and one uh, extension on that, when I was at the Nasaga Conference, the North American Simulation and Gaming Association, and I feel bad I'm drawing a blank on his name, but one of the presenters talked about how he uses Dungeon World in his philosophy classes so Mm -hmm. that when they're going on these dungeon uh, crawls, that as they encounter various monsters, they have to explain why they're taking their actions from various basically schools of 
of thought. So if they're going <laughs> to, yeah, it was really, it was really great. Uh, you know, if you're using Kant's categorical imperative to describe how you're getting past a kobold or how you would treat that kobold, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of really cool possibilities. And one thing, especially is I find, or I found Dungeons and Dragons to be incredibly intimidating when I first started playing. And, and even after like a few sessions, I mean, I didn't have the books. And quite honestly, I didn't really have the interest in getting all the books and reading them. I mean, certainly I have many friends who've read them all cover to cover just out of sheer delight. And that's great. But what I like about the dungeon world system, one, it uses just D sixes. So you don't need fancy dice, although Mm -hmm. I love to buy fancy dice. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, and it allows for a lot more sort of narrative description as far as what you're doing. It's not as rules crunchy. And I think if someone, and it's also free under creative commons, you can download all of it. So that's nice too. Um, So if it's something that you're wanting to explore in terms of using RPGs, and you're wanting to keep it in a fantasy setting, and you're wanting it to be free, I would highly, highly, highly recommend uh, the Dungeon World uh, game, the Dungeon World system. You can buy a book for it, but you can even just download character sheets and pretty quickly suss out, you know, what exactly they can and can't do um, pretty easily. And that system is used in a whole bunch of other different formats from Monster of the Week um, to all different other types of uh, storytelling games. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I think when you have that, you know, role-playing game they can it can be very personal to them but it also can be very abstract (laughs) you know i don't think i want any of my students to run around clubbing goblins you know (laughs) like if there was a goblin there i'd be like give the goblin some of its own autonomy man but (laughs) in a fantasy game it's okay that you're doing it and it lets them have that sort of creative expression so i absolutely agree as far as the benefits of that and there definitely are times where especially with my first love being tabletop games and wanting them to only play tabletop games. Um, But obviously, I mean, I play RPGs now too, and I see the value and the benefits because they learn in seventh grade with me all these board games, and then they move into, as they get older, they start to want to have more RPG experience, and that's just because they want more of the creative expression. Mm -hmm. They can follow the rules in a game, they still love board games, but it's that expressive piece that's really motivating for them. It it is, it's Pushing the boundaries and exploring things, right? Yeah. As a quick aside, uh, Dungeon World uses the Apocalypse Engine, mm-hmm. which is a, a really easy 2 die 6 and there are a whole bunch of different settings, and it's one that I've talked about quite a bit over on the, the uh, on RPGs podcast. Uh, there's great ways you can get folks started with, you pick up the Funnel World, is, hey, you're all starting at peasants and trying to become a hero, because <laughs> you have a whole bunch of peasants, and a bunch of them are going to die off. <laughs> um, and then there's, you know, a great deal of unique settings i've uh, i've run quite a bit at conventions here locally so yeah to hear dungeon world touted as uh, you know something i really kind of like that that's neat yeah no i think the the powered by the apocalypse system is also one that's Im- eminently hackable yes. so it is uh, you know open license ish um, and you can kind of use it to make your own RPG. So if your students are interested in RPGs and they get to the point of expertise where they say, hey, I think I can make my own or I'd like to make my own and they don't know where to start, use the Apocalypse Engine to at least get them somewhere started. And then you can, they can twist it and turn it a little bit here and there, make it a little more crunchy, a little, little less crunchy, whatever they want. Um, right. But use the, the idea that, you know, 10 and above is extra awesome, you know, <laughs> seven, to, right. 7 to 9 is, yeah, you did okay, and then anything under that is like, well... Yeah, you know. sucks to be you. Sucks uh, to be you. Yeah, it is great because the design paradigm, the way that they set it up is you've got these moves, and you can easily say, I'm going to just create a few custom moves that I want to use in my game, or you could go all in and create your home own playbooks, you know, do all of your own fronts and everything like that, yeah. so it's super flexible. And a lot of people um, like that have published with Apocalypse World Hacks have done it in like settings that they love. So if your students say love anime and their favorite anime is, uh, I don't know, like My Hero Academia, then they could make a whole game just on that uh, mm-hmm. in that world, in that setting and just play it with friends. And that'd be super fun. Uh, so yeah. there's the creative part, but they also allow for creative expression and socialization. So yeah, I, I I do think that uh, role-playing systems are great for that as well. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have a question. Do yeah. you think I am 
overly ambitious and wanting my students at that age at 12, 13, maybe, uh, we probably don't get into it much of their 14 year old. So, so let's say 12 to 13. Sure. And is it, is it too hopeful of me to think that I can meaningfully teach them enough about their brain to help them make better choices later? And I'm not saying this in a make Kathleen feel better way, but just <laughs> am I, is this something that they can really grasp at their level? Because I, I've honestly had mixed results, and I'm not really sure yes. if it's worth proceeding with. So, I mean, you have gifted students. So yes. it's So gifted is a whole different ball of wax for lots of reasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could talk about doubly gifted. We could talk about, um, you know, the fact that when some of those kids are five years old and they have existential dread because they understand what it means to die at, you know, age four. Like it's there, there's a whole host of issues that surround uh, people with, uh, you know, that are, we call gifted or whatever, Mm -hmm. Um, whatever the terminology you like to use that is sort of discounted by the general population. They think, oh, they're super smart. They have it so lucky. Um, But there's a lot of baggage that goes all around that whole idea of, um, you know, you are super smart. There are expectations, there are hopes, there are dreams, there are, you know, things that you didn't accomplish. There are things that you yeah, were higher to perceived accomplish. penalties for failure. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 for yeah, sure. Yeah, right. And so just in relation to that is that um, we just have to be very careful when we talk about gifted children in terms of, you know, how much content they can understand and rationalize through, but then understand that they're, their brain is still developing in a semi-typical fashion because it, it really has started at a different level. So, um, but their their hormones are activating the same, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. And and by the way, all the hormones that are you know released by the pituitary gland to trigger your um, sexual development and your and your primary and secondary sexual characteristic development as an adolescent have nothing to do with IQ ever. Like, they, they have very little to do with brain development or intelligence or anything like that. So, um, but they do have a lot to do with, or not necessarily a lot to do with, but they do have um, linkages to, like, emotions and things like that. So, it's understandable that, uh, you know, when a person is going through puberty and they have all those chemicals racing through their body that are telling them, oh, this thing, this thing called sexuality is now turned on. What are you going to do about it? Right? And that's what their body is saying to them. And no matter how rational their brain is, sometimes biology gets the better of it. And, uh, you know, we are better than our biology. We are. We can be. Um, But at some level, we're going to have to to compete with some of those things that happen at that age in terms of, um, you know, peer pressure, in terms of the thrill of sensory experiences, all that type of stuff. So at the age of adolescence and young adolescence, like 12, 13, 14, um, we we think of those ages as being super feelers. Um, So they feel the same emotions, but they just feel them a lot more intensely because it's so heightened at that time. And, you know, like when you were saying uh, that you've never been angrier, Kathleen, than when you were a teenager, that's what we're talking about. Like you felt something so strongly that the end result was you being super angry. And that super anger may have kind of overridden all the logical rational choices you would have made or can make now as an adult when you can kind of put your emotions in check right there's this um there's this really uh funny part of the brain that develops around um you know early uh, late chi- late late childhood early adolescence where kids can actually sort of bite their tongue and recognize that they shouldn't say something mm-hmm. right and it's the same idea as that it's like oh I rationally have to go through what are the consequences of this and do I actually want to deal with that or should I just not say what I thought I was going to say? Hmm. And the problem is when we get super emotional is that, you know, those filters are all gone or our ability to use them have decreased because we're emotional. So, um, you know, emotional regulation is a big part of growing up. 
In fact, it's it's usually how we decide describe parenting. Uh, a successful parent is could be in one way described as somebody who has taught another living human being to be emotionally regulated such that they behave the way that the parent would want them to behave when they are away from that parent. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's the trick. Yeah, that is the (laughs) trick. That is the total trick, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think we can use games to do a lot of that kind of feeling out of of playing new roles, of dealing with other people, of dealing with emotions within a structure, as opposed to this kind of wide open life uh, experience where the consequences can be dire. A game, you know, the consequences aren't so bad. It's like win or lose, or I guess we're not playing this anymore because I'm going to flip the table. Or, And I mean, obviously there's going to be some social ramifications past that, but games provide us with a, like almost a safe space to explore some of those things. And I definitely know I have, uh, you know, teenage, uh, like the sons and daughters of friends who are teenagers who are definitely using RPGs to explore a lot of their roles and their behavior and how they interact with other people. And they're pushing limits and they, they can as a character but then they can take that and template that onto their own life and say, oh, is that how I should do that in real life, right? So it's interesting. Well, and especially when you have families who play role-playing games together, think about how they're really working out so many different aspects of teamwork and communication and problem-solving right? in a way that they as a family are working through these things that can, you know, can be for the game, but then also have these amazing personal benefits as well. It's really interesting. So one of the things that I know we're really supposed to be talking about, you know, board and card, but... Um, you know, it's not, all under know. the happy umbrella. So yeah, whatever yeah, works, yeah. works. The happy umbrella. Um, one of the things that I know to be true for myself anyways, is that when I am doing uh, role-playing scenarios as a teaching exercise in classes, I can do so much more with that than I can with a board and card style. And the reason why I think is because board and card, usually it's like, did you win or did you lose? And if so, why? And that's about it, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas I find role-playing games, you can have much more nuanced uh, breakdowns at the end, like debriefs. And they're actually made for that kind of thing. There are so many tools that exist in role-playing games Uh, role-playing systems if you go to like the gauntlet.net or i think it's net you can find like safety tools and like the x card and debriefing tools like stars and wishes and things like that and people learn how to give each other feedback oh my gosh so important we don't do that in board and card right nobody's giving you a feedback on how well you rolled that die you just Unless, did it yeah, if you're, if you're you prototyping and play testing. Yeah, if you're designing. Oh, yeah, design is you're designing, different. you're speaking my language. Yeah. But yeah, if you're just playing, there might be a little bit like, oh, man, it was awesome when you did blah, blah, blah. Because honestly, if you're playing a game and you lose or someone loses, you know, afterwards, if you say, hey, you would have played much better if you just did X, Y, and Z, you tend to just come across like a jerk you know even if you're not trying to be you know what i mean because it has that sort of like finite binary sort of conclusion to it it's not supposed to keep going you lose the game thank god it's over let's move on to the next one right whereas rpgs are about telling a good story no matter that should be anyways in my mind telling a good story no matter what the outcome was for your character right so if your character died did you did you die well did you tell a good story while you were dying um you know uh, there's some really neat tools like Stars and Wishes. Uh, really, it actually comes from a classroom tool, Stars and Wishes, uh, where you give a star to somebody for something that they did really well in the game. And it's not about their actions as a character. It's about their actions as a player. So what did they do well as a player? Like, I really liked it, Kathleen, when you described what was happening to your character when they were suff- suffering a great loss. I, I, I really felt for your character, uh, and you did a great job of portraying that emotion. One star for you, right? And mm-hmm. then wishes are 
about the game in general. It's not going to, you're not attacking other players. I wish you would just shut up, right? Not to kind of like that. Like, you know, I wish next time that we focused less on combat and maybe more on developing the relationships between uh, our characters and the city folk that we just defended. I think that would be really cool. And so you can shape your own experience in an RPG uh, a lot differently than you can do that with boarding card. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of... Oh, yeah. That, that open world sort of format can lend itself, and especially depending on how comfortable you are in terms of running the game, your objectives, what you're trying to have come across. I mean, you could have any number of things that you've got pre-planned that maybe they'll discover, maybe they won't, or you can just make it up as you go along. That's a lot harder than it sounds like, but it's also a lot easier than it sounds like too, <laughs> conversely. Um, but especially in that sort of like open world lets you really move with them and play with them. And by having, by closing that sort of feedback loop, by finding out from them, I really like this idea. Um, this is something that I've not used, but especially with my eighth grade, I do more with RPGs now in the classroom where they learn a whole bunch of systems and then they write adventures and they run them for each other. This is something, so yay, good job. You just paid your way here. Um, <laughs> but no, this is something that I'm going to use that I hadn't even thought of. So thank you. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that uh, Fiasco is a great game to play to get people to sort of get away from just the the raw power fantasy of role-playing games. Because mm-hmm. when you're playing with um, younger uh, patrons here at the library, they tend to want to be the best at the fighting or the casting of the spells or the whatever it is. But um, you drag in a game where there is going to be a lot of failure, right? The whole point of the game is to... Uh, failing upward is not exactly it, but you fail dramatically towards the end of the plot uh, and then sometimes you'll hear folks talking about oh i remember when this happened and rarely in fiasco do you ever hear the story about how this went great right <laughs> you hear you hear you know like eric one of the onboard games hosts uh, talking about uh the failed bank robbery that happened as our rock band was trying to uh, uh, to go on one final tour and everything <laughs> went horribly wrong because that's where you can sort of find your fun. But getting some people to the mindset where they can accept that the story is not necessarily all about perfect success. And there are some role-playing games that that's what it is, right? That's the story. Sure. Um, but, you know, it's nice to have the flexibility of the form that you can sort of go between the two extremes. Yeah, mm-hmm. I did a version of uh, Azkaban, so as a, a dread game where you have a right, Jenga right, right. tower, yeah, Jenga tower, and when it crashes down, and the difficulty that I had was even though my players created these wizards that were just awful, awful people, they formed connections to them and didn't want them to die. And so finally, at the end, yes, okay, fine, you can escape with Voldemort, but I'm gonna make it really hard for you, <laughs> you know. But they just they had a hard time having that happen because they connected so much to him. So guess what? Then you change the rules. You know, if everybody's having fun, that's okay. I'm not a hardcore purist, I guess, when it comes to dread. Mm-hmm. It's okay. It's, it's okay. all right. You can do whatever you want. You're the game master. <laughs> right? 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 I, think, I mean, yeah, if I'm having fun, they're having fun, then yeah. that's, that's all that matters. That's another thing that I think is super important about games in general. So when a student can master the game such that they become either a game master or they can teach it well or they can design their own. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're looking at that that great sense of competence and that great sense of mastery and meaningful occupation of time that uh, that's what you want, right? That's what you want mm-hmm. from students. I've oh, had yes. so many so many people tell stories about, you know, how D&D or whatever role-playing system they were they were playing made their child write was the Mm -hmm. first thing they actually ever wanted to write about right Mm -hmm. and it's interesting so expertise as a psychological construct we look at expertise as something where children who become experts in something are also going to be usually more creative about how they express those facts right whatever they become experts in and so when you know, I know there's definitely been students that have said, I like this so much, I'm going to read all the books, I'm going to then go look at, you know, Greek mythology and Roman mm-hmm. mythology, which is roughly the same, uh, and, you know, Hindu and, you know, Egyptian mythology, and all, and, and write an adventure about that and mix and match things, and amazing stuff happens when you get students engaged, 
right, in a topic. And yes, there's a lot of power fantasy in role play and even in board games. Uh, but I think if you can curate that experience for them, then you can show them there's another side to things that is not only possibly more valid, but just as interesting and fun mm-hmm. and entertaining, two, right? Two quick things. I tell you what, the, the mention of the Greek and the Roman gods there, there is no better master class of showing how you can take somebody else's IP and sort of <laughs> massage it and turn it into your own thing. So the Romans were pros at that. They really were. And uh, you know, <laughs> so you can say, hey, look, they could do this. You can take Thor and put him in your game, give him a new coat of paint, and maybe change his hammer to a sickle yeah. or a whatever, and, and boom, there you go. You're good to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the other is is that uh, Stephanie and I were never more proud when our, our patrons started running their own games. So it's like yes. we started ShushCon for the whole purpose of getting that it'd be more games here in the library, and we had groups come in. And, um, you know, we sort of had to talk him through some of the silly stuff that when you were a teenager or when I was a teenager, we did, which is this guy was sneaking around and he irritated me. So I was going to try and get him caught um, to say, you know, nobody's having fun when that's happening. We're all trying to to play in our characters and to get them sort of past that little pettiness of right. what's happening outside to to engaging in a story. Let, let's tell a story where my guy's going to die. Let's tell a story where, you know, the, it's bigger than. Oh, I'm going to throw rocks at you while you're sneaking so that your guy will be caught by hobgoblins. Right. Because that's not fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there, there's there's a really neat part of, of being able to be part of a bigger story, I think. And mm-hmm. a bigger story that's interesting and that gets burned in your memory as that thing I did that one summer that I'll never forget, right? And for some people, it is role-playing. Or board gaming, or any of those things. Right. I just find role playing has a better chance of building those memories because mm-hmm. there's stories intrinsically, right? right? And, and personal connections to it. Yeah, and some people yeah. tell stories about their board games and how they play their board games, and that's fine. I just know for a fact that I don't remember many board games unless there is some very epic component to that game and a personal connection like so i remember every game that i ever beat zev at zev is uh <laughs> zev is WizKid zev or z-man x-z-man zev zev so we we have a, a yearly game of tissue jay and i versus mm-hmm. zev and usually stefan brunel from matago uh ex matago um and now he's with uh um, I think he's doing a repost right now. So anyways, we usually have a game with them once a year and it's this long standing thing, like seven, eight years in a row. And that's what I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, those types of things where there's emotion in it, you remember. So, and that's why I think dice games actually are very emotional and, and memorable, um, versus, you know, quieter games where you're just playing cards and things like that. So, well, okay. So I've got one last question before yeah. we wrap things up. We've been going for long. We say that all of these games are good for <laughs> showing or are good for helping learn. What are a couple of things that happen in the games or that you as a facilitator can have or cause to happen in these games that are going to make them more useful along these lines? Because, yeah, saying role-playing games are good for it. What, you know, what are some of the triggers that you can cause to make make the good event to happen right because i mean you need to be very careful with how you curate any exposure to anything really uh, as an educator as a teacher um and so yeah I, i think a lot of it is is setting up the story of the game for success is setting boundaries like having clear boundaries about what is okay what is not okay within if we're just talking role playing games uh because board games have a separate system uh, mm-hmm. Their rules are so delineated that that's how you play it. And then the rest of the social rules around that are are really different, which is actually why, in some ways, I think that, you know, role-playing conventions, this is a little aside, that role-playing conventions are a lot more ready to accept things like codes of conduct and inclusion and all that kind of stuff versus um, board gaming conventions. It's very different. There's so many social... Uh, standards within role-playing communities uh, because role-playing is intrinsically not as safe, right? Mm-hmm. You are injecting yourself into the game. You're putting a little bit of yourself in that in that character, and there's a risk there for some people. Uh, so as the facilitator, creating the boundaries, modeling those behaviors, modeling those, 
Those, you know, those desirable behaviors of, hey, we're going to use the X card or, hey, that's not cool to talk like that to anybody, you know, whether you're in character or not. And so setting those boundaries, modeling them, reinforcing them, you know, those are those are how you can do that in a role playing game in. And then, you know, I think the idea of if we're looking at, you know, Vygotsky's zone of proximal different development in terms of Mm -hmm. skill building is that whole idea of taking a player and turning them into a game master, right? Or a mm-hmm. designer. Mm-hmm. And leading them through those steps of, hey, you could do this. Uh, and then giving them tools to do that with. Or helping them, you know, develop that kind of stuff. Like, oh, you're going to write an adventure? Let me take a look at it if you want. That'd be great. Or, you know, I can I can help you set up the first thing or the first encounter. And, you know, helping people learn the skills of, teaching games to other people to empower them to be confident in their in that skill set and to take it outside of the library the classroom and say okay yeah i guess you can teach all your friends at your in your neighborhood or whatever how to play this like they at the could, library right or the library take your friends to take the it library with or borrow it from it the there. classroom and play it right <laughs> so there's a lot of ways <laughs> to do that that aren't strictly design related um but that are really play related and um, it's the same thing of, you know, just giving people license to do those things, I think mm-hmm. is the best way that you can foster that development and nice. be there to support them when they fail or when, you know, something's going wrong and they need somebody to be that mentor for them. I think that's what we look to teachers and librarians for anyway. Uh, we just have to be there for the game part of it as well, I guess, right? That's yeah. a shame. What do you mean it's a shame? <laughs> That's a horrible shame that we have to be there for the game part. Oh, horrible shame, <laughs> yes. Horrible, 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 horrible. And to bring it back to my first point, too, is if we have kids playing games in libraries and other places, then they won't be doing drugs and ruining their brains. So, yay, win, yeah, win, win. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and it's interesting. So, one of the there, – there's a list of seven key – uh, developmental needs for adolescents and physical activity is one of them. And while, you know, some board and card games and RPGs definitely are low on the physical activity point, uh, I, I think, you know, the social aspects of them, the getting away from the home, getting away from the parents sometimes mm-hmm. is a good thing, you know, being autonomous learning how to take the bus to the library, uh, you know, all those types of things to be part of a a gaming group or whatever. That's super important and super being a grown-up, right? You're learning all these grown-up community access skills that will serve you well in your whole life, right? Right. And, and so, so how a lot to of enter people and navigate the real world. Yeah, a lot of yeah. people talk about events that have turned changed their lives, right? And I know, I know for a fact there are lots of people out there that would say, you know, gaming has changed my life. Tabletop gaming specifically has changed my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so change mine. Yeah, right. So I hope mm-hmm. that uh, you know we use these tools, and that other people who are listening to this podcast can see how they can use these tools not only as an educational tool, but as a tool to foster development in young teenagers into helping them you know be a little more uh have a sense of who they are and figure out their unique strengths and figure out how to collaborate and play with other people nicely still as a teenager it's funny that we say that but it's a skill that we have to keep on refining and and keep on doing as we get older and older and older, we still have to work with other people. And games, co-op games, role-playing games, team games are a way of doing that still. So I think they're mm-hmm. very important. Nice. All right. Well, I think that's a great thing to wrap up on right there. I agree. Um, I concur. Let us know where you can be found on the internet again. Oh, uh, so my name is Sen Fung Lim. I use he, him pronouns. And I can be found on the web at... Twitter at Senfong Lim and on Facebook you can find me usually at the Meeple Syrup Show or Meeple Syrup Shop Talk. Nice. 
And Kathleen? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mercury with seven M's. In addition, I provide all of my game design teaching resources for free at KathleenMercury.com. I'm also a co-host of the Board Game Broads Facebook group and our podcast. And so if you're interested in design and you are female or gender nonconforming um, or really anybody, we'd love to have you part of our group. And I'm Donald Dennis. You can find me on the internet as Walsfio and here at the Wakabonak Branch Library. We are recording now and come play games with us. And of course, we do ShushCon every March. So come and join us for that. All right. I'm Donald. I'm Kathleen. And I'm Sen. And you've been listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. Bye. And now we have canned outro for the rest of it. So. Thanks, Sen. You're the best. Hey, no problem. That was so good. It was fun. I feel like that was excellent. Yay. Yay. No, that was so good. I'm so glad you were able and willing to just jump on at a moment's notice. <laughs> so, I'm always good for stuff like that. I know, I know, but you still... Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. You can find out more about us and the people who create this show over at InverseGenius.com and all of our other wonderful, wonderful shows, including on board games, on RPGs, the Inverse Genius podcast, and the Room Escape Divas. We are also now joined by the Party Gamecast and Nephilop, who you might remember as Stephanie, previous co-host here on the Games and Schools and Libraries podcast, and our friend Lynn Theory. Thank you for listening. Games and Schools and Libraries is produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System.